Have you ever wondered if we are alone in the universe? Is there any scientific evidence showing that an intelligent designer created the heavens and the earth? Welcome to Darwin or Design on Tampa Bay's Christian Talk AM 570 and 910. You may have heard about the debate over intelligent design and Darwinism. Find out what the evidence says about the origin of life and mankind, and just what the experts are saying. Darwin or Design, brought to you by the C.S. Lewis Society. Now your host, the author of Doubts About Darwin and Darwin Strikes Back, the research professor of Bible and theology at Trinity College in Trinity, Florida, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome to Darwin or Design. I'm Tom Woodward, your weekly host. I'm a professor of theology and apologetics and science history and rhetoric of science at Trinity College. I'm also the founder and director of the C.S. Lewis Society and have done some writing on the very topic that our program focuses on every week. Virtually every week, we're really zooming in with a laser focus on the topics of the theory of macroevolution and the theory of intelligent design, comparing them, looking at the scientific evidence, and also studying the philosophical issues and the theological issues and the, the social and the sociological issues that arise as well. This is a hot topic in American culture and spreading the question, of course, is there evidence for design or is the Darwinian, neo-Darwinian theory of uh, macroevolution well grounded on empirical evidence? Those questions are spreading in Europe, Asia, and around the world. I have actually had um, a number of people uh, say through either personal contact, phone chats, or through uh, internet uh, messages, you know, why don't you have, instead of uh, just some of these guys, you know, they're affiliated in their research positions with design, why don't you have one of the people on the other side of the equation? And one fellow in particular, a regular listener, has said, you know, have you tried? And I said, well, I've made some efforts, and I actually did put out a number of feelers, some people I thought would come on the program. Uh, I, I thought it would work out, and it didn't for various uh, ir- irrelevant reasons, but I did manage to purchase on the internet through uh, my local Amazon.com uh, entry point a very interesting book, fascinating book. It's on the other side of this issue from where I stand, but it's a very well documented in terms of just beautiful illustrations, extensive discussions, and the name of the book is Evolution. What the Fossils Say and Why It Matters. And if you want to have one book in your library, uh, it's from Columbia Press. It looks like Columbia University Press. If you want to have one book in your library that presents the case for why uh, those who stand up for macroevolution, neo-Darwinian or other forms of macroevolution as well supported by the scientific evidence, this would be probably the best book to get on the subject. And we're excited to have at the other end of the line out in California, Professor Donald Prothero. Don, are you there? I'm here. Thank you for joining us. Appreciate it very much. We've had a few chats on the phone, and I'm sorry I was not able to get into your hands a copy of my own book, uh, Volume 2 of the History of Design, called Darwin Strikes Back. I will try to get that to you, as I said in my email, later this week or early next week. And then maybe we can, you know, if it works out, we can continue this this, this discussion in coming weeks, uh, you know, now and then, not like I say, you know, consecutive necessarily, but maybe we can have you back now. Now, as we jump into the topic, uh, I'd like to kind of bring a little personal slant because you have been a professor of geology, help me out, geology and paleontology primarily? Yeah, so I'm a paleontologist by training, so I teach a spectrum of different geology courses here at Occidental. I also teach at Caltech. Okay. I noticed that on your uh, signatory on your email. Caltech is in Pasadena, is it? That's 
right. Okay, and uh, Occidental uh, College is where? Also well, we're in the north side of, of downtown Los Angeles in a uh, community called Eagle Rock. Very so good. Very we're good. just a short distance from Pasadena. Very good. And I noticed, I think you taught at Knox College, am I correct? Yes, my first teaching job out of graduate school was at Knox College in Galesburg, Illinois. Mm-hmm. I also taught at Vassar College in Poughkeepsie, New York. So I've actually been in small liberal arts colleges most of my career. Very good. Well, I, I didn't uh, marry a Vassar girl, but I, marry, I met a lot of different uh, Vassar girls when I was a student at Princeton. Uh, back in the late '60s, early '70s, so uh, one of the about the time I was at Columbia, actually. So. Very good, very good. Well, you were at the other, uh, the New York City I- Ivy School. Yes. When I was out in the sticks of New Jersey, so it's great to, again to have you on the program. And uh, I remember what I, I noticed you you quoted Philip Johnson uh, in the beginning of your book. We'll maybe come back to that this time, or maybe in a later encounter. Uh, Philip Johnson actually uh, has written six books on this whole topic of evidence for design, and I noticed you quoted from Darwin on trial. Have you read any of his other five books by any chance? I've read parts of them, but uh, not all of them at length. Okay. Well, Dar- uh, for, for whatever criticisms people may make, and you may, you have a couple criticisms of Philip Johnson that we may air here in a minute, one of the things I liked about Philip Johnson is that he, to me, modeled uh, a civil discourse. In other words, I was, I was in attendance at, oh, probably half a dozen events, seminars, symposia, uh, or even debates where Johnson and others were engaging in lively discussion. And I'll never forget the time that he and Michael Ruse, the famous uh, Darwinian philosopher of biology, uh, who, when he was still at the University of Guelph, when they uh, engaged in dialogue in the, um, the round tables in the dining room of SMU a- after the sessions of the Darwinism um, science or philosophy it was the name of the symposium and i remember uh johnson laughing uproariously together with um michael ruse and enjoying himself the two of them of themselves the two of them rather enjoying themselves immensely even though they differed profoundly on some of the philosophical and scientific issues and i hope that we can at the end of our discussion again have have that same spirit that uh, that he modeled and that even michael ruse uh, later wrote uh you know, that he enjoyed that symposium as well. So hopefully we'll have a micro symposium here okay. and we can have the same spirit of openness and, uh, and mutual respect. And, and, um, and that will be the key uh, takeaway lesson. Now, tell us a little bit about how this book came about, Evolution, What the Fossils Say and Why It Matters and Why You Felt Compelled to Write It. Um, yes, uh, I've been basically a paleontologist since I was age four hmm. and never grew up. And uh, many of my peop- my colleagues in paleontology the same way, got hooked on dinosaurs at a young age. And as soon as we knew what a paleontologist was, we've always wanted to be one. And so that's been my life pretty much from the beginning. But I was also raised in a fairly traditional Presbyterian church. And so I got to know the Bible very well throughout my entire you know uh, elementary, junior, and high school years. Mm-hmm. I went to Sunday school every week, you know, and, and uh, by the time I was... Uh, junior, senior in high school, I had enough science background that I was beginning to question a lot of the simple-minded stuff that I was being taught in Sunday school. Hmm. And so uh, it led me to a big exploration when I was finally on my own in college, and I learned to read the, the Bible in Greek and Hebrew, and I still can read them pretty well. And I did a lot of research and a lot of reading and took courses in comparative literature and the origin of the Bible, so that I learned a lot of stuff that's not usually taught to people in American religion today about the nature of the Bible and how it was written and what it says in its original form rather than what the translations say. Uh, so it helped me uh, uh, tremendously in seeing religion from a broader perspective than the way I was raised. Mm-hmm. And I bring some of that out in the book as well. I talk about some of those aspects of it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, 
Now, anyway. do, do you consider yourself, I, I haven't really gotten, I guess, to that part. I mean, you were mentioning a couple things that uh, maybe I didn't, I, I was jumping around, just have had the book for a few weeks. And uh, what w- would you consider yourself a theist, an agnostic? Where, where do you peg yourself? Well, uh, by the time I was in high school, it was hard for me to be anything but agnostic because I had uncovered so many things about the Bible that I could not believe anymore that it was impossible for me to be in that position anymore. Hmm. And as a scientist also, I don't make assertions about things that are not knowable. And that was something to me that was, you know, it's simply not knowable whether there's a God or not. And uh, so I've taken that attitude pretty much since then. I'm not, you know, I'm not hardcore Richard Dawkins type atheist, but I, at the same token, you know, I, I, I like to take a rationalist and naturalist mm-hmm. point of view and everything I can, and I no mm-hmm. longer see any way to, to put a God in that picture in the way I look at the world. Okay. Well, I appreciate your, your point of view. Of course, I, in my experience, I was an agnostic in my entering uh, days at Princeton University, uh, heading toward pretty much a, a Dawkins version of hardcore atheism. And it was my encounter with very intelligent students at Princeton University who were teaching uh, or actually having just kind of discussions and, and some lectures on the various uh, you know books of the Bible. That, that caught my eye. Here I found some very, very intelligent people at Princeton who, who did not see the Bible as just a kind of a source of moral guidance, but an actual historical record of, as what C.S. Lewis would say, you know, God making uh, his move into nature uh, after it had been hijacked uh, by an alien power. And so uh, I appreciate your forthrightness, uh, you know, presenting your worldview and your your point of, uh, you know, entering this discussion. And and I think it's good that we both can put those uh, philosophical assumptions, those presuppositions out on the table so the people at least know where we're coming from in our background assumptions and our most profound assumptions that guide our thinking. Now, uh, you wrote a book here that really tries, if I can put it in a nutshell, your book tries to present the case for macroevolution, not necessarily driven by the motor of natural selection and mutations. That's kind of almost um, faded into the extreme background of your book, but you're trying, especially from fossils, to present the case for life having evolved. Am I capturing the basic idea? Yeah, I mean, uh, you'll see I have a chapter where I discuss, you know, evolutionary theory and how it's changed through time and how it's gone from being a sort of hardcore neo-Darwinian theory in the 1950s and 60s to being more of a pluralistic, open approach uh, in the last few decades with lots of uh, non-neo-Darwinian ideas emerging, and that's that's fine. I mean, mm-hmm. there's always going to be a d- discussion among biologists about the, how evolution occurs. What's not in discussion among among legitimate science anymore is that evolution occurred in the first place, and that is something I point out. The evidence is over overwhelming for that. And then because I'm a paleontologist and this stuff has not really had the kind of coverage, especially in recent years, that it deserves, and there's so many misconceptions and mistakes out there about what the fossil record does and doesn't say, that was really the goal in writing the book was to put this evidence out. It's just a gigantic amount of recent evidence that's emerged about fossils and transitional forms that most people have not heard about or what they've heard about is wrong or out of date. Okay. And that's what the book is trying to correct in a lot okay. of ways. Well, you know, we only have about a minute left in this segment, and uh, if you don't mind hanging on for another segment or two, we'd really enjoy to uh, okay. continue the discussion. Sure. Let me go ahead and just kind of, as I kind of uh, phase out of this uh, point uh, of our discussion, what I, what I think I, I, I'm seeing here 
is that you, uh, as a professor of paleontology, by the way, if you're just joining us, we're speaking to Donald Prothero, professor at Occidental College in uh, the L.A. area of California. He's on the phone with us talking about his uh, relatively new book. It's been been out about a year, right? October. October. Wow. Evolution, What the Fossils Say and Why It Matters. And, of course, I, Tom Woodward, the host of this program, take really uh, the opposite point of view from Dr. Donald Prothero. Uh, Dr. Prothero believes that the evidence for evolution, whether by Darwinian means or whatever, he thinks the, the evidence uh, for macroevolution, all things from simple beginnings, is overwhelming. I take the opposite view. I view that the evidence, empirical scientific evidence against macroevolution is overwhelming. So we have a very interesting tension developed. Uh, both of us are, are graduates or at least affiliated with Ivy League schools. So, uh, you know, we're not two dummies. We're two uh, educated people having a wonderful discussion. Join us as we get into the thick of it in our next segment. You're listening to Darwin or Design. Welcome back to Darwin or Design on Tampa Bay's Christian Talk, AM 570 and 910 WTBN. Once again, here's the host of Darwin or Design, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome back to Darwin or Design. We're having one of the most exciting discussions, uh, kind of a miniature seminar here, uh, going between uh, Tom Woodward. I'm representing the side of, um, of questioning or skeptical uh, viewpoint of macroevolution, and we have a very strong and capable defender of macroevolution on the other end of the line. He is uh, Dr. Donald Prothero, uh, well known in the area of evolution as it touches the fossil evidence. And of course, he has uh, been so gracious to take out time between a couple of uh, appointments and classes. Are you still there, Dr. Donald Prothero? I'm here. Thank you very much. Okay, your book, Evolution What the Fossils Say and Why It Matters. Uh, I'm about, oh, I'd say a third to a half of the way into it. I've been jumping around, devouring different bits and pieces. And uh, let me just jump into two spots in particular, see if we can tackle these in this segment. And that is the issue of, first of all, the Cambrian explosion. You, uh, in your chapter, I haven't read every word of it, but I've uh, gotten pretty much most of your argument on the Cambrian explosion. And you would say that the sudden appearance of the fossil specimens in this very low, very, uh, you know, dated, rather ancient 545 million years or so, up to, what, 490 or 500? Yeah, yeah. that's right. Okay, the uh, rocks dated in that era um, have a sudden appearance of not all, but many of the phyla that we see today, the basic body. Well, patterns. that's the point of the tra- chapter, that they don't show a sudden appearance. We show a series of steps. Okay. And then the bed, well, why don't you just go ahead and give us your summary of why the right. fa- that Cambrian explosion maybe should not be called an explosion right. or it's a long phase. It, the, the, the title I use is the Cambrian slow fuse because that's a much better description of it. And the basic point is that a lot of people on your side who talk about the Cambrian explosion have not paid attention to the last 30 years of research, which has shown that there is no explosion. In fact, there is a steady progression from more simple to more complex forms of life. We have uh, simple bacteria going back three and a half billion years old and then around just shortly before the Cambrian you start to see uh, multicellular animals for the first time but they're very simple very soft bodied things they used to be called worms and jellyfish although now we're not exactly sure that's true and but yet they're multicellular and they're, they're definitely too large to be anything but that and uh, they're not trial 
trilobites are not things you find in the Cambrian. And then the very earliest stage of the Cambrian, before we see trilobites, we see the very first things are skeletons, but they have very small, very simple skeletons, only a few millimeters across. They've been nicknamed the little shellies by the people who work on them. So we're starting to see stage by stage uh, development of more and more complex life with uh, features appearing in steps, and there's no explosion whatsoever involved there. In fact, we have 10 million years just in that early part of the Cambrian alone before trilobites appear. And over that entire span of time, almost 100 million years, so no matter what what your uh, sense of time scales are, you can't call that an explosion when it's at least 40 to 100 million years in duration. It only appears that way looking in retrospect uh, after we've seen all these, these phyla appear in the Cambrian and then not many new phyla appear since then, that it seems like an explosion because they all start about that time. But by no means is it anywhere near to instantaneous. It's something that's stretched out over tens of millions of years. Mm-hmm. And it's physically, uh, you know, it, not only that, not only from dating techniques, but you can actually physically see that in the fossil record. It's best documented mm-hmm. in, in the Russian platform where we have these sequences of first Ediacara fauna, the soft body things that are large but no shells, and then the little shellies, and then the trilobites. You can see this actually in sequence okay, well, okay, in Russia. Know, let me just jump in for a second because, again, I, I think this reveals the, the magnitude of the tension and I'm not talking about emotional tension. I think, you know, I, I, I feel emotionally relaxed. I think you're emotionally ra- relaxed. But I, 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 I'm sorry. From what you're telling me, I see a profound disconnect between what you're saying and what I've been reading, not from fundamentalist or even Christian descriptors, but Simon Conway Morris. And, of course, the, the wonderful life, Stephen Jay Gould, some of the things he said in that book, dated, I think, 89 or 90, right. 18 but you years have, ago. Hold, hold on. Let, let me finish what I'm saying, please. Okay. 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 What I'm seeing in these and the recent discovery in Utah, which, of course, you're aware of well, of uh, that uh, modern-type jellyfish, previously dated around 300 million years ago, suddenly are found in the Cambrian. So the Cambrian even has the abrupt appearance of morphologically modern jellyfish. We have even the discovery of what 500 actual specimens of fish, hycoithes, discovered in the uh, Qingjiang in the southern China strata. So I, I'm almost shocked. I, I'm too strong a word. I'm surprised. I'm a little bit astonished to hear you say that this is no explosion. No, it's not an explosion because the time scale means that everything is developing over tens of millions of years still. Tens? No explosion by anyone's stretch of the imagination. Tens? And, yeah, I thought tens it was the, I, I thought We're it was the Timotian. 490, okay. 490 to 550. That's six, 60 million years there. Tens of wait, of years. wait, wait, wait a second. It d- didn't the Qingjiang fauna, according to Junyuan Chen, a personal friend of mine who, d- who directed, uh, at least was one of the leaders of the directing the early digs at Qingjiang. Right, I know he, about when, it. Yeah, yeah. When I hosted Junyuan Yuan Chen here in Tampa Bay took him to the University of Florida, set, right. up, set up a lecture there, took him to the University of South Florida, set up a lecture there. He lectured on our campus. Right. He said, quote, I don't see how the Darwinian theory can handle the Cambrian explosion because we have so many kinds of, of morphologically uh, distinctly morphologically complex creatures appearing suddenly. So here he, we have a guy, he is not a Christian, he's not a theist, he told me he was an agnostic, and he says that this is a problem for macroevolutionary means. Well, I disagree with him very profoundly, and I think any other uh, paleontologist who knows a lot about the Cambrian would also disagree with him. And he's ignoring the Ediacara fauna, he's ignoring the Tamadian fauna. Those are all prior to all these things you're talking about, no, and they're Tomodian, much simpler. The, no, the fauna he's describing, we're in the Tamadian. No, 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 no. The, the, the Chenjiang fauna is just slightly younger. 
and there, both of those are older, uh, younger still than okay. the acrophone. Okay, okay. Well, we're, we're, okay. Well, well, let me just point out that the very fauna that you pointed out, the um, the very interesting Ediacrophauna, you know, those uh, feather-like, uh, and I and I love the description, by the way. Your your book's description of the Ediacrophauna is the best I've read anywhere. And I want to just kind of give you, uh, you know, uh, just a, a, a high five on describing the case for macroevolution better than I've read anywhere. Okay. So if I think, I think anybody who listens to this program regularly, who is interested in this topic would uh, do themselves a favor by ordering and uh, reading as much as they you know, have time, your descriptions of the fossil record, because I think any person who is, uh, you know, from the worldview of a, of a Christian or a theist and who thinks there's good evidence for design needs to understand the other side. Uh, the the more orthodox, the more traditional evolutionary biology side uh, to understand why biologists are standing firm as you are in your stance. Now, th- let me just jump to an, a related topic. We have about four or five minutes left. Would you not? Uh, would you recognize that the that the Stephen Meyer article, which focused on the um, not only the origin of the major body plans, but the origin of the DNA that would be necessarily or probably affiliated with those body plans. Is that not something of a mystery? How macro evolution by natural means alone could craft the 120 million uh, letters necessary to run, let's say, an arthropod that sudden appears, suddenly appears in the Cambrian? Well, uh, somewhat of a mystery, but it's getting to be less of a mystery all the time. Every okay. time we apply scientific methods to it, and that's one of the exciting things about the science. We just don't slam the door and say it's all designed, end of story. We look at it, and we look at it, and we try to resolve issues by applying the scientific method and naturalistic methods. And what's really exciting about this in the last 10 or 12 years is that we've made huge progress in understanding how things like gene regulation and a whole bunch of other mechanisms can really do dramatic things with body plans and uh, to generate things that we never thought of before. Right. Uh, plus, the molecular clock has given us gigantically different understandings of how phyla right. are related and how far back they go, which is something we could never have done in the past. So it's important to realize that that is part of the open-ended process. Right. We're not surrendering and saying, okay, it's a mystery. We're going to stop. Well, I, again, I would disagree profoundly with you and your use of the word surrendering. And you used the word just a moment ago, it's all design, end of story. And I think that's a, that's a woefully, um, I mean, that falls woefully short of accurately or let's say um, fairly or, or graciously describing design uh, inferences here. I mean, well, but I, let, 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 let me fin- let me finish this point here because I think it's a very important point. Stephen Meyer, who wrote that article, did not just submit it to Richard uh, Sternberg, Richard von Sternberg, and uh, say, "Okay, here's our article, print it." Richard von Sternberg had to turn it around to three selected peer reviewers who were not uh, on Meyer's side and who were. Uh, who gave thumbs up after certain changes were made. Now, my question to you, have you read Stephen Meyer's article? No, I haven't, but I have read all about the, the accounts about it. My my sources told me there was not thumbs up. The reviewers rejected and the editor... Well, I noticed that. I noticed in your book, if I can just be, just honestly, I think that was the most important error in your book, is you said in your book, and where you're discussing that, there, that they, they raked him over the coal. Well, it was published. The, the The New York Times and the Washington Post even published the research done by the, I believe it was the chairman of the board of governors or a very high-ranked official of the Smithsonian went into the files, looked them over, because if that would have immediately been a cause for righteous indignation if Sternberg had not followed peer review. And he looked in the files, he found that they were legit, and he said, 
you're right. You said he followed the procedures. And that's where well, I'm just okay. saying. Let's see, what does that prove? One, uh, one intelligence design article published among millions published in a but year. You're, but, okay, but you're, you're shifting the goalposts. The point is, this is the most important article, and, and I'm, I'm quite a little bit surprised that you haven't read it. I would encourage, I can email you a copy if you're willing to read it, and we could discuss it maybe on a later program. Okay, but, but now you have one article claiming the camera explosion is, is, not, is a mystery and is not resolved by scientific methods, mm-hmm. and thousands of articles by the people who actually work on these rocks. If we went by that logic, Dr. Prothero, we would have the time that, let's say, Copernicus or Einstein or any of these new ideas came on board. We'd say, well, there's one no, idea here. the point first- is, Meyer doesn't actually work on the fossils of rocks. He doesn't have first-hand experience in this. And that's a big difference between talking about philosophically and mining somebody else's work and actually actually being in the rocks okay. and in the fossils. Okay, well, we have a... Uh, Bill Carl, I think we have a wonderful discussion going. Thank you so much, Dr. Donald Prothero. If you can just stay for another 12 minutes, I'd like to just talk a little bit more about your excellent book. I mean, excellent and presenting the case for macroevolution, which everybody who listens to this program should be maximally familiar with. More with Dr. Woodward and Dr. Donald Prothero when we return with Darwin or Design. Welcome back to Darwin or Design on Tampa Bay's Christian Talk, AM 570 and 910 WTBN. Once again, here's the host of Darwin or Design, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome back to Darwin or Design. You're listening to an exciting uh, freewheeling discussion between uh, Dr. Donald Prothero, a professor of paleontology and author of a a very fascinating new book, Evolution. What the Fossils Say and Why It Matters. Uh, Dr. Prothero is a professor at Occidental College and also a lecturer at Caltech, uh, California Institute of Technology, kind of the MIT of the West Coast. And Occidental College, I imagine, is probably like the Swarthmore of the West Coast. I'm well, we're, we're one of the top liberal arts schools. That's great. Yeah. That's great. Well, uh, Dr. Donald Prothero, I want to say is very magnanimous of you of coming on a program where obviously I'm, I'm at the other side uh, of, of this issue, whether there's evidence for design. And you've been very gracious. You've been, you know, we've had a lively discussion. Let me just step back away from these matters a little bit and just talk uh, about the, the origin of life itself. Now, um, when, when I looked at your chapter on the origin of life, um, I got the impression uh, that, your, that your summary of the situation is that we're making good progress. Could you tell us a little bit about the origin of life and, and your take on it? Yeah, it's an area of research that, you know, it's very open and it's very full of uh, mistakes, but also interesting avenues, and you never know, you know, where it's going to lead. But what's exciting about it is it continually evolves and it continually changes, and we're making so much progress that we didn't even think was possible. And uh, so we're discovering all sorts of interesting mechanisms of how to make uh, complex molecules out of simple ones, and uh, and there's just, just an endless supply of good stuff going on there. But the point being that even if we put all that aside, it's not something that's critical to evolution theory per se, the origin of life is a different question from whether life evolved or not. Mm-hmm. We can set it all aside if you don't believe life originated by naturalistic methods. It would still not change the fact that since life has appeared, it evolves. Mm-hmm. And so your, <clears throat> I think your point, uh, I mean, your, your main uh, attitude is one of optimism, of course. Well, that's, you know, that's the way it works in science. If you don't think you're going to get anywhere, why would you do it? You know, you, you try to continually uh, devise better experiments. You try to continually see ways you can improve or, or disprove things mm-hmm. that have been done before. But the idea is that we're trying to move forward. We don't just sit there and sit on our hands and do nothing. Okay. 
Right, and of course, the the, the main founders of science uh, were the, were men who, uh, and I guess women were involved here and there as well. well not many of them. Not, not many. You're right. Yet. That's that's for sure. <laughs> not until this century. Not least. until this century. Yeah. Okay. So we're making progress and involving both sexes, I think, but uh, and probably need to make more progress still. Uh, but let me just just cut to the chase on this. The, the the founders of science were men who, generally speaking, maybe not everyone, but most of them felt that the universe was set up by an intelligent designer. Of yeah, some it was sort. part of their cultural assumptions. That's the part generation of their, they're part of. A, a part of their culture, and it didn't hurt them in doing good science. No, that's yeah. not true. Right, and so I think we're, we're we can agree on that point. We can also agree that. If there were an intelligent designer, uh, at least uh, leaving aside the issue of Genesis, it remains a philosophical possibility that any intelligent designer could use, uh, or at least could we, we could we could uh, work with the uh, with the hypothesis that designer employed natural mechanism X or X and Y and Z to bring about such and such complexity. I mean, well, you can you can go with that. Yeah. I mean, we can't test that scientifically. That's the issue. Yeah, okay, but but then that re- then that remains the possibility if a designer does exist. Uh, let's say transcendent to nature. You know that nature is the is the product of that designing intelligence. If that remains as a live philosophical possibility, right. then, it, then it also remains a live philosophical possibility that evidence. Uh, in relation to the origin of life, may reveal an unbridgeable chasm. In other words, if the if the steps from the single nucleotides or nucleotide pairs, you know, with the phosphates and sugars to form DNA and RNA, and the and the, and the, and, the, and the step up from single amino acids to form sufficient number of proteins to get a, a cell up and running. Because after all, for the ribosome alone, I think you need a minimum of fifty three proteins and three uh, RNAs. So uh, basically. Life for life to function, you have to get to a minimal threshold where it can process energy, i.e., do metabolism and reproduce itself. Would you agree? Yeah, but uh, you would say unbridgeable chasm. That's making an assumption I don't agree with. No, 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 no. You're 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 you're, you're, you're moving too far. Hold on. Let me just just clarify. There remains the possibility. Looking at it just from a strictly philosophical point of view, there remains the possibility of discovering. The more we research this area, an unbridgeable chasm that is unbridgeable by natural laws. That remains a, a possible result or yeah, outcome. But philosophically, it's also unacceptable to a scientist who is committed to naturalism because that says we're going to stop looking. Aha. Uh-huh. But why okay. does science have to be commi- committed to naturalism? Isn't that because committed? of the very nature of how science works? It's methodological naturalism, something Philip Johnson does not understand. And the point is that you cannot say, "Okay, I don't understand how this works, therefore I'm going to stop." That's God of the gaps approach. Okay, it's un- but, unacceptable. Well, okay, uh, Doctor Prothero, uh, just a second. I've read all of Philip Johnson's books, and I guess you haven't, because he spends an entire chapter in his book reason in the balance he he offers an entire chapter discussion of this whole issue of metaphysical naturalism philosophical Method, methodological naturalism no 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 no, no basically no. the idea is methodological naturalism oh, hold on hold on hold on i i didn't finish my sentence yet okay okay his discussion is the difference between metaphysical naturalism and on the other side methodological naturalism right okay now metaphysical or philosophical naturalism is that which would decree let's say or state uh, god does not exist no higher power no higher intelligence exists methodological naturalism which I, I understand very clearly from reading your opening chapters that you advocate says that we must uh, not as scientists at least we must not uh, admit or bring into our thinking the possibility of an trans 
transcendent intelligence. Is that what you would say? That's right. And a very simple reason. There's no way to test the hypothesis. If you cannot test the hypothesis, if it runs into a dead end and leads nowhere, which is what that does, then you can't do science. But what about Dembski's uh, way of statistical testing for patterns? That, that isn't the same thing. We're talking about a testable, falsifiable hypothesis. You cannot falsify these hypotheses that God did or did not do certain things. Okay. It's unknowable by the scientific method. Okay? okay. Statistical arguments are interesting, but they aren't falsifiable. Okay. Well, let me give you an example of a scientist who is doing falsifying uh, research. Ralph Silke, professor at University of Wisconsin, Superior Campus. He has monkeyed with the uh, tryptophan gene in the, uh, the trypa uh, operon gene in, found in these uh, E. coli bacteria, which have their own little mousetrap system that builds Yeah, I, I know the, the gene. I don't know oh, his okay, research. Okay. What he did is he went out to Stanford, Stanford University uh, the Medical School. One of the professors there helped him to knock out two critical nucleotides that literally produce uh, a crippling um, single-digit, a single amino acid error in the trypa gene, so it never really forms into a, a proper protein shape. Therefore, the machine is, sh- is shut down. He, he, he knocked out on one set of bacteria a single uh, digit, and then another group of bacteria, or at least another parent strain, he knocked out double digits. Then he went and allowed them to reproduce. His prediction was this. Random, random mutation would immediately or very quickly correct the single digit. But when you have to correct two digits at the time, then the uh, you know, 100 billion rate of mutation, one in 100 billion or whatever it is, I forget the, the figure, if you double that and there's a multiply at times itself, then it makes the two digit very unlikely to repair itself. Well, he has been now through 3,000 generations, something like two and a half trillion bacteria have been unable to repair a two digit error. That It's only two letters away from a functioning tryptophan system. And he feels that this corroborates the new work by Michael Behe. In other words, evolution can do some things, but it only can advance if there's one mutation at a time that converts an advantage. Two is the, is the evolution stopper, two digits. And yet we know that proteins, to mutate from one form and to retweak their folds, require anywhere from 10 to 20 to dozens of mutations. Now, I see here in Ralph Silke an example of a bench scientist who's doing good work. It will be probably published this year. I don't know which journal. But it's, he's, he's using good, intelligent design methodology to test his system. What would you say about that? Well, and I would say the other people who know that system well will go and examine his work and try to reproduce it. Mm-hmm. And that would be the first thing that has to be done first. Okay. And then there that's would fair. have to be numerous other exa- uh, studies of this kind to see whether that's a generality or not. Okay. One little case like that does not prove anything, okay? Okay, and that's why at the beginning, when we were before we got on the, into this discussion, I urged you to read the new book by uh, Dr. Michael Behe, Edge of Evolution, because he, too, in monitoring the data coming out of the malarial genome studies and the human genome studies is, is showing a limit of two mutations seems to be the evolution stopper. Two will happen. Well, very rarely. I, I've heard a lot of things otherwise, and especially when you're okay. dealing with regulatory genes, mm-hmm. which where one small switch in a regulatory gene can do a big change to an entire genome by having it read or unread and, mm-hmm. and large chunks of genome end up being switched. Mm-hmm. There doesn't, it doesn't require that you have uh, to stop evolution with one or two things because a single mm-hmm. regulatory yeah. gene can make gigantic changes. Right. Right, yeah, and, and, and Dr. Behe has a whole chapter on regulatory genes, Hox genes, and the laying out of the, of the radial symmetry of an animal. Let me just go back in your book and just say, I loved the pictures, and I love your discussions yeah. of the origin of life. Tell us, how did you get these fantastic pictures in your book? Um, most of the original art was drawn by Carl Buell, who's probably the dean of paleoartists these days. And wow. 
So he, we commissioned him and paid him to do a very large number of original images. Mm. A number of others we just picked up from other sources and had redrawn by the company that prepared the book. Mm-hmm. But uh, as far as photographs go, it's just a good thing to be a part of this profession. I know all yeah. these guys I bought. That's great. Photographs are all pretty much given to me gratis by my colleagues. And you so. have some fantastic pictures, some of the early Cambrian soft-bodied vertebrates. Your discussion of the Ediacara fauna, those, um, like, I used, you describe them as, like, air mattresses, I think, at one point. That's, that's a metaphor. That metaphor, yeah. Waterfield air mattress. Yeah. And, of course, Tiktaalik, rosy eye. I've talked on this program about the importance of, uh, of everybody on every side of the equation to understand the importance of this fossil fish discovered in northern Canada. Uh, maybe we can have you come back at some point in the future after you, you know, look at my book and I'll finish your book and we can come back and talk in more detail about the important fossil Tiktaalik rosei, which I believe you say is a good example of a transitional form from fish to land tetrapod. Yes, and the, the author of it, it's now the best-selling book in natural sciences now, Neil Shubin, has described it as a good friend of mine, a classmate of mine, a co-author of mine. So. Okay, well, this has been a lively interaction. Dr. Donald Prothrow, you have been a magnanimous and very gracious and very courageous person for coming in just letting me chat with you, and I hope you, I hope you didn't mind the, the, uh, the flashpoints, but I think we both learned and and I've, I've enjoyed talking to you, and I want to just recommend your book to anybody to understand the case for macroevolution, the case for the uh, various kinds of evidence on the other side. And the name of the book is Evolution, What the Fossils Say and Why It Matters. Maybe we can have you back at some other point if you feel up to it. Now, we'll see how my schedule lets me Okay. Donald, Dr. Donald Prothrow, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that was one of the more interesting, exciting, challenging, and fun discussions. Uh, Bill Carl, what, what is your thought, just as we kind of slide out of this? For me, it's going to be more than a 30-second answer, so why don't we catch that yeah, on the back okay. end? Well, come right back, and we'll be right back on Darwin or Design. Welcome back to Darwin or Design on Tampa Bay's Christian Talk, AM 570 and 910 WTBN. Once again, here's the host of Darwin or Design, Dr. Tom Woodward. Well, welcome back to Darwin or Design. I've uh, taken a couple (laughs) deep breaths. Bill, you've taken a couple deep breaths. We had a final uh, chit-chat with... Dr. Donald Prothero during our break, and uh, and he's off to a faculty meeting, and so we're here here uh, digesting, I guess the 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 remembrance of a fairly intense engagement. What would you, what were some of your well, impressions? Well, I, I think it kind of sitting on it as a fly in the wall, it was definitely intense at times, as you guys discussed uh, the different um, facets of uh, evolutionary theory versus uh, intelligent design theory, particularly when it came to fossil record. Uh, something that he has made his specialty in yes. in terms of uh, as, in terms of being a paleontologist. Definitely, um, I thought that was very interesting. And then I, I, I sensed there was a certain discomfort on his level when he would make remarks about uh, guys like Philip Johnson and Behe and and some of these others. And it was evident that he hadn't really read their material, but rather had gained his insights from other people right. who maybe had read their material. Mm-hmm. And, and I thought that was interesting. But I think most of all, from a person who who's coming from a whole nother perspective, kind of a, a different, I'm, I'm the guy in the audience you're trying to talk to really mm-hmm. in many cases. Yes. I think it's interesting. The conclusions in terms of morality, in terms of uh, our thoughts about God that people draw from either side of the argument, you know, Dawkins would consider himself, uh, if you're talking about Richard Dawkins, would consider himself very moral mm-hmm. and he does moral things, but he takes it from almost a, it's almost this reaction against the creation that he says has just come out of nowhere. Well, Dawkins seems to almost borrow a Christian morality from the, let's say, New Testament right. teachings of Jesus. Love, 
you know, respect, honesty, integrity. And then he turns, he tries to almost divide, in my way of thinking, he divides to, to just hit, hammered away this wedge between the Old and the New Testament and and, right. and tries to almost say, well, it's the Old Testament God, you know, who was this brutal, you know, kind of angry, vengeful, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I don't want to do that whole Dawkins right. quote, but I think that he's trying to use Christian morality to, you know, borrow it as a sledgehammer to bash Christianity right. or to bash the Bible. Now, Dr. Donald Prothero, I appreciate his forthrightness that he gave us the background. He grew up in, in this Presbyterian background, turned agnostic. And I was surprised that he, he took the time to learn the Bible in the original languages. Now, I wish we could have him back and talk about the he implied that there was a problem in the biblical text. Either the compilation of the canon yeah, or, or the, the actual textual translations, yeah, translations and versions. And of course, you know, biblical scholarship is really astounded to this day. I mean, anybody on any side of the of the academic spectrum is astounded at how many copies we have of the New Testament and of the old, mm-hmm. you know, if you include the Dead Sea Scrolls and you're talking about 200 B.C. And older and older copies that are closer to the events. Older copies that are really close to the events. We have a scrap of the book of John. I believe it's chapter 18, so, you know, about five or six verses that really go back to, let's say, 120, 125. In other words, but within 30 years of the writing of John, we actually have a copy. That's unheard of. Right. Okay. So that's kind of like a, it's kind of a sidebar. It's more my area than his area. But when we talk about fossils, I mean, the thing, if I can just say something about the book, when I read this book, I didn't even bring it up. You didn't want to get too incendiary. But in this book, Dr. Donald Prothero prints the heckle embryos, you know, the the, right. the, the series of fudge drawings that, that Jonathan Wells has made a big deal of in his book. That have been discredited. That have been discredited. They were repudiated yeah. 110 years ago. If you open, I, I'm not going to take time now, but if you open the pages of this book, you'll find those same drawings, the heckle embryos. And he never in his discussion says that they're discredited or fudged or faked. He, say, he basically says scientists don't you know, buy the same law anymore, but still he, he almost is trying to rehabilitate those embryos. Now, I thought it was personally... Um, you know, inappropriate, I'll use that word, to, to publish in a book presenting the, the evidence for evolution. This is this is as strong as you get on the other side. I mean, this is the full shooting match. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was inappropriate for him to use discredited, repudiated, fudged, faked. Those are all words that fit appropriately. Heckel's embryo drawings in a book published 2000. Seven. Okay. Right. I, and I and I didn't want to bring that up. That was actually on the Evolution News blog. Paul Nelson posted a about two or three weeks ago this article saying, "Can you believe it? They're still using the heckle embryos." Now, um, he is one hundred percent sure he's right. Okay. And I'm pretty close to one hundred percent sure I'm right. That's why I felt it was important for me to um, bring out earlier on that. Um, he's basically convinced the evidence for his side is overwhelming i and i think you and uh, most of my listeners perhaps uh am, am persuaded that the evidence for design that is for intelligence behind those dna um hard drives those those mm-hmm. incredibly wonderful intricate uh bits of uh, dna information that that evidence for a designer is overwhelming 
So here we have at two opposite sides of a thought chasm, and we're trying to almost, you know, hello over there. <laughs> what are your thoughts? Do you like pizza? Because I like pizza. Oh, yeah, let's be friends. <laughs> so it's almost impossible. Um, I think uh, hopefully, you know, if graded on a, a scale of civility one to ten, hopefully we're up closer to the ten range than the one range. I think we maintain civil um, relationship. And, you know, after I send him my book, who knows, he may say, I don't want to talk to you anymore, but he may say, yeah, let's engage further. So we'll try to have that. You know, one of the things I think we could bring out as a spiritual lesson is that Jesus Christ, God's son, the actual in, you know, coming to flesh of God himself, literally engaged constantly with people who thought he was nuts. I mean, his own family thought he was a psychiatric case. They came to take him away, basically put him in, in their equivalent of a psychiatric ward. And um, what Jesus said, it was very interesting in the book of Luke, when they had that attitude of him, he didn't, he didn't get phased. He didn't you know, let it get to him. He basically pursued what he knew to be the truth. And the truth was he had come to earth on a very important, a crucial, critical mission. And that is to take that humanity and deity wrapped up in one person and lay it down on the cross, you know, in this incredible act of compassion and sacrifice and bearing on his shoulders, on his back, the very load of rebellion and sin and, um, you know, basically mankind's junk, you know, mankind's mud that we would have thrown in God's face. God says, I'll lay it on Jesus's back and he'll pay the hell that you deserve. And so that's really what I think is the critical point is that when Jesus um, was dying on the cross, when they nailed his hands out onto that big wooden uh, side beam on the cross, he didn't say, I hate you. He said, Father, forgive them. So his compassion was even flowing as his blood was flowing uh, toward his enemies. I'm not saying Donald Prothero is my enemy, but he's certainly, nor am, you know, nor am I his enemy. But we are certainly at the opposite end of the spectrum. And that's one thing that I learned years back from Philip Johnson. And I'll never forget the phrase he used. He said, quote, something like this. He said, as these macro evolution supporters begin to get wearier and wearier with their theory, realizing the evidence is slipping away and there's the, the case for it is slipping away. The evidence is very, very thin. We need to keep the lights on. We need to keep the, the runway lights up so that they have a place to land. They have a friendly you know, place, alternative landing strip if they realize the main runway is shut down. And I'll never forget when he said that. And you know what? I didn't bring this up as I was re- recollecting the interaction between Darwinist Michael Ruse and, and design advocate Philip Johnson out of Berkeley, University of California, Berkeley, of course. But in that conference, uh, we had four, besides, da- uh, besides Ruse, rather, we had four Darwinists come on one side of this whole question and five scientists on our side. Okay, they're at SMU, March, March of 1992. So you had five and five. Five people convinced that macroevolution was not supported by the evidence, and five people completely sold out to the idea that macroevolution was supported by the evidence. And guess what? We had a, a civil conference. We had dialogue. We had debate. But it was friendly. And four out of the five uh, neo-Darwinists that left said on their outbrief sheet, Something like this. This is a, it was an outstanding conference. Several of them put, this is the best scientific conference I've ever been to. And so I think part of the progress we're going to make is capturing, if you will, the spirit of Jesus. Is you, you, you pray for your opponents. 
You love them. You seek together in that pathway toward truth because that's what it's all about. The most important thing I've ever said to any audience, I learned this, Bill, when I was in Australia this summer. Remember that brutal mm-hmm. tour? I, yeah. thought, I think you came yeah. on as my director. Just right after right that. Right after yeah. that. But in the aftermath of that tour, I realized the most important thing I gave probably uh, or equally important was not so much the you know, slides of DNA and the pictures of proteins and the beautiful photographs of fossils, but it was this whole closing I, and I use it to this day and it, and it was it was really from the Lord we are living in the midst of a scientific revolution number one enjoy it enjoy every second of this incredible sliver of history that we have the privilege of seeing with our own eyes and our own ears as we watch it unfold secondly read diligently on both sides and that's why I got this book because Donald Prothero's book is very full of of harsh rhetoric against us, but it's very full of information that I need to know on why he's confident that his side is right. Okay, so let me repeat. Number one, enjoy the revolution. Two, read diligently on both sides, on both sides of this issue. And number three, keep an open mind. You know, because that's part of humility is not the arrogance of, I have it all figured out. And so you can go fly a kite, Mr. X or Mrs. Y. And that's why I think that this is so exciting to have the privilege each week of talking about such vital issues. There is no more important issue than where we came from and where we're going. The origins issue is not minor. It's not a little technical debate over there about this or that, you know, physics, you know, deep thing. I can't understand. No, it's basic. Can we explain the origins of humanity, of consciousness, of life, of the universe, apart from an intelligence? Or do we see the fingerprints of intelligence all over these phenomena? And I'm arguing, of course, I'm laying out the case week to week that the evidence is overwhelming, that the fingerprints are staring us. They're shouting at us. They're all over there. And the thing that was most tragic is to learn that Dr. Donald Prothero had not even read Michael Behe's book the most important book showing the failure of mutations to do anything. You know, Michael Behe has said in his new book, you know, Edge of Evolution, uh, mutations we've learned by studying the DNA of humans and the DNA of malaria, especially African-American humans, uh, Africans and African-Americans. As we've studied those DNA patterns, we're seeing broken systems, broken switches, broken objects and bags and, and pulleys and levers and, machines that are broken and that's the only way this war is being this kind of war of attrition this trench warfare is being fought is breaking things if you look in the dna you look for any mutations that are doing anything and you don't find a single case anywhere of mutations building something new Mm. now that is data and people say oh it's just uh, that's just mathematical that's just mathematical uh calculations no michael b he says no that's data. That's information. That's scientific evidence. And we will begin to make progress when the Donald Protheros of this world begin to shove aside the New York Times bashing of Behe's book and read the book itself. Well, I, you know, this has been one of the most exciting programs, and we need to, you know, really pray diligently and seek you know, God's wisdom and having more and more people like Donald Prothero, people who are willing to engage us on this subject. And if you have an idea out there, please let us know. You can always reach us at the C.S. Lewis Society office, uh, either through email. Just call uh, us at the office, 727-376-6911. Or 
uh, you can reach us through email at information, spell out the whole word, information at apologetics.org. You can always get my book, Darwin Strikes Back, on our apologetics.org um, bookstore. You can also reach uh, us, of course, uh, through the Trinity College general number. You can always look us up in the phone book. Uh, Bill, Carl, thanks for making this pro- broadcast possible each week. And thank you out there for listening to us. Hopefully you're making it a weekly seminar here, 5 o'clock to 6 o'clock every Saturday on WTBN. Thanks for listening. This is Tom Woodward on Darwin or Design. Design.